Welcome to Experience This, the podcast that celebrates remarkable customer experiences and inspires you to stand out from the competition by wowing your customers. Each episode, we bring you a healthy dose of inspiring stories, funny interactions, and practical takeaways. Marketing and customer experience thought leader, Dan Gingas. Shares the mic with customer retention and employee experience expert, Joey Coleman, helping you to get people talking about your business. So get ready, because it's time to experience this. Get ready for another episode of the Experience This Show. Join us as we discuss... How one restaurant is taking accessibility to new heights, putting the customer in customer experience, and what loyalty looks like when price doesn't matter. Dining, designing, and priming. Oh, my. There are so many great customer experience articles to read, but who has the time? We summarize them and offer clear takeaways you can implement starting tomorrow. Enjoy this segment of CX Press, where we read the articles so you don't need to. Today's CX Press comes to us from the New York Times and an article titled, Accessibility is a Right. This restaurant treats it that way. The article is by Pete Wells, a restaurant critic for the Times, and it covers his experience at a restaurant in New York City called Contento. Now, I was first introduced to this restaurant by my friend Lauren Rotolo, who is a fellow speaker. And she was telling me about it because it is a restaurant that particularly caters to people who have difficulty getting around and who are in wheelchairs or who have other accessibility demands. So Wells reports in the article, quote, Night after night, I see restaurants that are theoretically wheelchair accessible. What I rarely see are wheelchairs. And I'm ashamed to admit, I never thought very hard about that until my first meal at a new restaurant in East Harlem called Contento. Two of its owners use wheelchairs and they designed Contento so that they and others like them would be as comfortable as possible. And word has gotten around. Unquote. Now, in order to do this restaurant review, and yes, he did cover the food at the restaurant, Wells brought a guest, Beth Wisner, who gets around in a manual wheelchair. His guest was absolutely amazed at some of the things that she discovered at this restaurant, including the smooth concrete path from the sidewalk to the front door, the placement and height of the tables and bar tops. And this is something that my friend Lauren told me about, is that most bars are too high for people in wheelchairs. They can't, they can't go up to the bar and order a drink. And what happened, what's, what's going on at Contento is half of the bar is purposely designed at a lower height so that it's a perfect height for wheelchairs to roll up to. There's a clear, wide path to the table. This is often a problem that once you get into the restaurant, if you're in a wheelchair, you can't get between the chairs. They're so tightly put together that you can't move around. I mean, this is a problem lots of times in restaurants, especially in New York, if you're not in a wheelchair. That like is they true. <laughs> even have the table scrams. So, so I, can, I can imagine how challenging it would be to try to navigate a wheelchair through. Absolutely. The tables themselves, the dining tables, are designed to allow a wheelchair to fit underneath the surface. 
And the biggest one, and my friend Lauren brought this one up too, the ease of getting into and out of the restroom. So what Lauren said, and the article gets into this a little bit, is that most restaurants in New York, well, all of them are subject to the American Disabilities Act, but most of them have some sort of exception because they have been in business since before the ADA. And so she says she's gone to restaurants before where the the restroom is in the basement. And the only way you can get down there is through a flight of stairs. And so she's not going to the restroom, whether she needs to or not, she can't get there. And I thought that was so interesting. So in the article, the Wisner, who's the woman in the wheelchair, says 99% of restaurants may call themselves accessible, but they're not. You know, Dan, there are so many things about this I want to dive into. Let, let me start briefly with a riff slash rant on the legal aspect of uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. I get that your business might have needed to put an exception in, in the beginning. Okay, that to me works at the very beginning. When a new law comes out and you're like, okay, we need some time to make the investments we need to make. At this point in the game, enough is enough already. I know it adds an extra cost to business, but it's the right thing to do. And I think there are so many examples where uh, organizations or businesses are kind of using aspects of the law to skirt around doing the right thing. And it's just incredibly frustrating. You know, I'm reminded of you know, about this restaurant that I talked about in a previous episode called Pizzability in oh, Denver, yeah. Colorado. Season 4, episode 82, Joey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I knew you'd know the number. And Pizzability, uh, ha when I went there, and I actually ended up going multiple times. I went once because a friend recommended it, and then I kept going back because I just wanted to support what they stood for. It was a restaurant that was designed to, similar to the one we're talking about here in this segment, Contento, to be more accessible and more available to a wider band of potential customers. And I think there's just huge opportunity for every business to open their eyes to how they could make their business more accessible to all of the potential customers they have, not just the ones that maybe, uh, you know, either look like them or sound like them or act like them or fill in the blank of to whatever bias or perspective they're bringing to the table. Well, and I want to add to this. If, if if you and I could both step off our soapbox for just a second. All right. Th this is not just the right thing to do. This is a good business decision. And that's what I think the point was being made in this article is that the, the author mentions he's never seen people in wheelchairs in restaurants. Well, um, there's lots of people in wheelchairs. So where are they eating? They're eating at places like Contento that welcome them. And so as a business owner... Why would you not want to bring more people into your restaurant, right? I mean, forget about it being the right thing to do. Of course, it's the right thing to do. But I think this is a business question. And that's the thing I don't understand is why so many companies default or, or businesses default to, let's see if we can get around this versus, don't we want these people to come to our business? Don't we want all people to come to our business? And the article mentioned that there is a clause in the American Disabilities Act that this is what has caused people to get around it is that there are companies that are already or businesses that already exist only have to make the changes if they are quote unquote readily achievable. And so the idea being, hey, if you're in a building that was built in the 1920s and the bathroom's in the basement, there's not, you know, it, you, you can claim that it's not readily achievable. But 
going back to you with sort of your lawyer hat on, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about sort of following the letter of the law, which says, okay, we're not readily achievable, so therefore we're okay, versus the spirit of the law, which kind of is about we need to make our businesses a place of welcome for all. Well, and this is a problem, you know, with laws in general. And we could have an entire episode about the philosophy behind law and writing laws. And the reality is when laws are written, most legislators do their best to imbue the law with a certain spirit. Like, here's why we're creating this law and here's the challenge we're trying to address and here's how we're trying to make it better. The problem is we're humans and words matter and they put language down on paper and then the clarifying language gets added in and then lawyers get involved and I say this respectfully and other clarifying language gets added in and specifics and exceptions and rules and regulations. And next thing you know, it's so completely daunting and overwhelming that people just throw up their hands and say, oh, I don't even want to do it. I think at the end of the day, businesses operate in an environment where we have rules and regulations and laws that require us to do certain things. But we also know, especially here on The Experience This Show, that doing the bare minimum just isn't enough. It's just not enough anymore. It's not enough to say, well, I have a website. No, you've got to have a website that has a phone number on it, that has the ability to contact you, that answers the questions that your customers want to know. You've got to go further than the bare minimum. And I think lots of times people go to the letter of the law with a bare minimum approach. Yeah, I definitely agree. And one more thing I would add to that is the other layer is interpretation of the law then starts to kind of dictate how people respond to it and different, you know, differing lawyers can have differing interpretations. So in the spirit of putting yourself in your customer's shoes, I really liked the fact that the author of this piece, Wells, again, paid attention to Weisner's movements in the restaurant. So he was watching her navigate through this restaurant. And here's what he wrote, quote, the night was comfortably warm and the front door had been propped open, allowing Ms. Wisner to wheel herself up the sidewalk's slight incline to the threshold and into the dining room in a single unassisted shot. She couldn't have done this, she explained, if the restaurant had a heavy swinging door or a step up from the sidewalk. Quote, I don't want to have to be lifted up and over a step, she said. I want to be able to get in and out myself under my own power, unquote. I think accessibility is indeed a right and it is often overlooked, but yet a critical part of the overall customer experience. After all, what business wants to make it impossible for customers to do business with them? I don't think any of them. By the way, it should be noted that according to the review, both the food and particularly the wine list were quite memorable at Contento. So the next time I'm in New York City, I will definitely be checking it out. We're excited to give you an overview of an important book you should know about, as well as share some of our favorite passages as part of our next book report. Today's book report is by customer experience thought leader and friend of the show, Annette Franz. It's called Built to Win, Designing a Customer-Centric Culture that Drives Value for Your Business. Now, astute listeners may remember that we reviewed Annette's previous book, Customer Understanding, in Season 3, Episode 72. 
Let's go straight to Annette to hear about her new book, which released on March 22nd. There are a couple of reasons that I wrote Built to Win, um, mostly for company executives and leaders, including board members. Yep, the board's got to be on board as well. (laughs) Um, But it's also for others who want to help executives and leaders really understand what being customer-centric means why it's important, how to build the business case um, for building a winning organization where the customer is really at the heart of everything that you do. So the point is to help the reader be inspired to act, to think differently, and to want to build a customer-centric organization that drives values for all of its constituents. I think that the other thing, the other reason for writing the book is that there's some real confusion out there about what being customer centric really means, right? There, I think a lot of folks think it it's oh, we've got a customer centric employee or a customer centric department or this message was customer centric. Where customer centricity and being customer centric really it flows through the DNA of the organization. It's it's the culture. It's how we do things around here and why we do things around here. And so, I think that's the the one of the real messages that I wanted to get out there as well is that customer centric isn't just an individual, you know, a hero employee or anything like that. It's the entire organization putting the customer at the heart of everything that they do. And like I say, no discussions, no decisions, no designs without bringing in that customer voice. So I think that's a really important part. So number one, inspiring leaders to act and think differently about being customer-centric, and then number two, really understanding what being customer-centric means and what it is. Built to Win is a quick read, and I mean that as a compliment, that summarizes Annette's more than 30 years in the CX business into 10 core principles for becoming a customer-centric organization. Now, those include discussions on culture, leadership commitment, governance, employee experience, And specifically, three of the principles are people before products, people before profits, and people before metrics, as well as several other principles. Now, Joey, let's start with you. What was your favorite passage in Built to Win? All right, Dan, I got to say my favorite passage came from a discussion that Annette recounts having had with one of her clients. They were talking about understanding their customers, and they kept using phrases like, we think our customers are... Or, I think our customers want. So she made them put a dollar in the jar at the center of the table every time someone started a sentence that way. She then writes, there is no we think. It has to be we know. Because you've done the work to know, to understand. This is really what being customer-centric is all about. No guesses. You know because you know. Because you did the work. And you brought what you learned into every discussion, decision, and design. End quote. This is almost like the swear jar for customer experience. And I loved it. Yeah. And, you know, Joey, that quote also uh, struck a chord with me as well. And I think, as you know, the moment that changed my career and really pushed me towards customer experience is when my boss at Discover, my last boss pointed out to me that he had observed something in me that, frankly, I hadn't observed myself, which was that when I was in business meetings trying to solve problems, I was always the one with the customer hat on. I was trying to solve the business problem, but also keep the customer in mind. And people who have worked for me over the years will also know that very often, I might have frustrated them by not giving them a straight answer because my answer was, ask the customer. Which ad do you like better, Dan? 
Uh, it doesn't matter which ad I like better. Let's ask the customers which ones they're more likely to respond to. And so I was always really big on A-B testing and comparing different uh, approaches and not necessarily making a decision based on what I thought customers wanted, but instead waiting for them to tell me what they want. Absolutely. I mean, I think the difference between guessing and knowing is huge. You know, I got to admit, I know you are a wordsmith, Dan. I found myself the other day looking up the difference between the word assume and presume. And what I found is that basically, assume is to make a guess, whereas to presume is to make a guess that is based on evidence. Okay, that's a, a gross, uh, you know, generalization of the definition. But I do think at the end of the day, in the modern era, we have no excuse to not be engaging our customers more and letting the voice of the customer, the behavior of the customer dictate our actions. You know, we talked in the last episode about the TV show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and the release schedule of this. And you brought up an excellent point, which as I mentioned in that episode, I hadn't thought of this idea that they should have the data to know whether customers are binge watching their show or whether they're watching it a few episodes at a time. We need to do a better job of using the data and using the information that is available to us before we make these decisions on how we should behave as a business. Yeah, I think too many companies rely too much on that old Steve Jobs quote that basically said, you know, if we listen to customers, we'd never have the iPhone or the Henry Ford quote that says, you know, if we asked our customers, they would want more horses. That may be true. And certainly with innovation, sometimes we do have to deliver things to customers that they don't even know they want yet. But the inverse of that is also true, that when we listen to customers, we get great ideas about what it is that they want from us or maybe what it is that they don't want from us. And I think we all collect so much data, but then this data sits there and we don't do enough with it. Now, Joey, I know this comes as no surprise to you, but I happen to find the one passage in the book all about baseball. <laughs> of so, course you did. <laughs> so I had to make it my favorite passage. Here it goes. Several years ago, I was reading an article about an interview with then-new Anaheim Angels player Albert Pujols. His comments really struck a chord and were a great reminder of what all too many who measure employee and customer satisfaction end up doing, focusing on the score. In the interview, Albert was asked, In 2011, you just missed getting 100 RBIs and a 300 batting average. What is your philosophy about personal statistics in relation to goals? His response, I don't get caught up in numbers. I think when you start doing that, you start disrespecting the game. You start forgetting what your main focus is, and that's winning and helping your ball club to win. Last year was the best year because we were the world champions. At the end of the season, you're going to have plenty of time to look at your numbers. Now, I'm sure you can understand why I loved this quote. Even though Albert Pujols for a long time was a Cubs nemesis, he's absolutely right. And this is a great quote about customer experience. Is that if we're only focused on the numbers, then we're missing sight of the larger goal. And sometimes you can miss your numbers and still hit that larger goal, as Albert did when he won a World Series ring, but didn't quite hit 100 RBIs. Yeah, I think that's... And this is the difficult part of 
being in business for every business, right? We we look at the conversation we were having right before you shared your favorite passage about paying attention to the data. And then we have this quote saying, well, don't pay attention to the numbers, pay attention to the bigger picture. And I think that's the fine line. I would posit that the businesses that struggle the most are the ones that are over-indexing or over-focusing on either of those extremes. They're either all data or they're all big picture. And it really requires us to consistently thread the needle, to be taking both perspectives into account with every business decision and every choice we make. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think, I agree with you, it's not just one or the other, right? I mean, one of the reasons why the Angels won the World Series that year was because Albert Pujols had a great year. The fact that he got... I don't remember how many RBIs, probably in the in the high 90s, but not quite 100, really is insignificant. And, and those extra couple of RBIs, they don't, it doesn't make them win the World Series twice. They accomplished their goal. And I think if, if you take this into a business sense, it's like, okay, we can track our NPS score going up or down a point every month. But is that really the goal? Or... You know, because our profit went up, given that our customers are staying longer, spending more, and referring more people, isn't that the goal? And regardless of what the NPS score turns out to be. So I think you have to look at both. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other challenge is you get into a scenario where your team will start to manipulate the situation for the number. Uh, If I find myself in one more conversation with a salesperson after I buy something that says, and you get a little email or a phone call asking for a review and, you know, a five-star review would mean the world to me. I'm like, ah, stop stop trying to pre-frame me to give you five stars. This was not a five-star experience. If that's really what you want, you would have given me a five-star experience. Don't just ask for the five-star experience and think that you're going to get it for asking. All right. Well, speaking of asking, what about Annette's favorite passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's always fun to have our authors choose their own favorite passages. And Annette even comments on the difficulty of doing so. It's like choosing your favorite child. You just can't. It's a challenge really to pick my favorite passage of the book, but I think this is a really important point. I think I think people get stuck on why focus on culture, period, whatever your culture is, right? There's this great quote from, and this is the passage starts with this. There's this great quote from um, Mark Lohr, founder of Jet.com, and he says, the values create the value. And then I write, culture is a driving force in creating value for customers and for the business. Yes, values do create value. First, When your values drive a customer-centric culture, you're putting customers at the center of all you do. Again, no discussions, decisions, or designs without thinking about the customer. Solving problems for the customers creates value for them and ultimately creates value for the business. Second, when customers' values align with the brand's values, when customers are aligned with the brand's purpose, they're more likely to prefer, purchase from, and recommend the brand to others than those who are not. And then I share some proof from John Cotter and James Heskett from research they conducted years ago, culminating in a 1992 book titled Corporate Culture and Performance. And they've continued to build on that research over the years. They discovered that leaders who use culture as a strategic tool versus those who don't do so quite successfully. These leaders saw the following stats over an extended period. Revenue increased fourfold, workforces expand eightfold, stock prices rise 12 times faster, Profits climb 750% higher and net income grows 700%. I don't know about you, but I am convinced culture 
for the win. So go check out Annette Franz's new book, Built to Win, designing a customer-centric culture that drives value for your business wherever fine books are sold. Your customers are real people, not numbers in a queue. That's why Help Scout lets you manage conversations, not tickets. Join us now for Conversation Corner. Hey, it is Matt here from Help Scout with the question of the week. This time, the question is, Dan, can cheap customer experience be good customer experience or could a low-priced product have a great experience? Yeah, I think so. I, I came up with a couple of brands that I feel like have low-priced products and great experiences. The first was Wendy's. I think Wendy's is one of the more fun fast food companies. They've definitely made a name for themselves on social media for being very witty and humorous. And I do think that they create a really nice experience uh, in the restaurants. The second was Marshall's, the retailer. They have branded clothing of brands that you recognize, but they tend to be either last year's styles or for you know whatever. They're kind of like overflow inventory. But the fun of Marshall's is going in and it's like the, the search, the hunt. And so you go in and every time you go into the store, they've got different inventory and you might find something amazing or you might go in and not find anything. But there's this sort of thrill of the search of the treasure hunt, which I think is really cool. And the third is Hampton Inn, which is one of the brands under the Hilton flag. And it is their, I think, their least expensive brand. But you know what? It always comes with a hot breakfast in the morning. And I remember when my kids were younger, they always loved staying at Hampton Inn because they wanted the free breakfast. And it was interesting to me that you could stay at a super high-priced hotel and not get anything for breakfast, or you can stay at a really inexpensive Hampton Inn with a very comfortable room and a great hot breakfast. So I do think that low-priced companies or products can still have a great experience. What do you think, Matt? I agree. I just think we often talk about the kind of white glove customer experience, but it's not the only kind of customer experience that's valuable. And something that is a very low cost, packet of uh, rice milk. You drink a lot of rice milk in my house for various reasons. And the container that it came in for years, you've clicked open the top about 40% of the time, the whole lid piece that meant to be the pouring spout would just detach completely. It was infuriating. And at some point, they just changed to one where you just twist it open and it would stay there the way it's supposed to. It was like a real life-changing improvement. It cost them probably a few cents, but it really made me much happier to buy that particular brand. So I think small things can make a big impact. For sure. I definitely simplicity and the little things make a big difference. Don't be afraid to focus on the little things in your business because they really add up to a big thing. I like to say customer experience doesn't have to be a multi-million dollar, multi-year transformational process. It's just a series of little steps. Unfortunately, it's an endless series because <laughs> as soon as you think you've gotten there, your customers change their expectations. But the good news is, is that small steps are achievable. If you want to learn more, please go to our special landing page at helpscout.com slash experience this. Again, that's helpscout.com slash experience this. And tune in next week for the next question of the week. We love telling stories and sharing key insights you can implement or avoid based on our experiences. Can you believe that this just happened? 
The price of Amazon Prime is going up again. And some people are mad about it. But not Amazon's most loyal customers, including me, who will likely not notice or care. Now, why is that? The subscription service, which launched in 2005 at $79 per year, will now cost $139, a whopping 76% increase. Now, I know inflation is getting higher, but it ain't that high. You know what else has drastically increased? The value that customers get from being Amazon Prime members. You know, Dan, I think that is an incredibly important point. As a fellow longtime loyal Amazon Prime member, I remember when the entire program was essentially sign up so that you can get free two-day shipping. But today it offers, frankly, a mind-boggling array of benefits, including things like Amazon Prime Video, Amazon Prime Music, unlimited photo storage with Amazon Photos, free magazines and books with Prime Reading, discounts at Whole Foods, and oh yeah, that free shipping on Amazon and free grocery delivery on Amazon Fresh. And look, this is not meant to be a commercial for Amazon Prime. They're not paying us to do this. But the point here is when you have that much value, then people don't mind paying for it. And even within things like the delivery service, right? It started off as two days, which at the time was unheard of. Unheard of. Two days shipping. (laughs) Free and two days? It was like, if you wanted it free, it was going to be two months. And if you wanted it in two days, it was going to cost you 10 times more than the item you purchased. Right. And then what did Amazon do? They... They improved on it. They made it one day. They Now there are some products you can get same day. And things like Amazon Prime Video keep getting better. They've won all these awards for uh, some of their TV shows and movies. They've signed a streaming license with the NFL for Thursday night football. And what I thought was really interesting when I was thinking about this price increase was what if you just strip out one of those benefits and compare it to a competitor. So let's say you look at Amazon Prime Video versus Netflix or Amazon Prime Music versus Apple Music or Amazon Photos versus Google Cloud Storage. That fee is looking a whole lot better. It really is. I think where it gets challenging is what happens when you subscribe to Amazon Prime? and Netflix, and Apple Music, and Google Cloud Storage. And I think at the end of the day, you know, these costs and these additional subscriptions certainly have an impact. And I want to acknowledge, you know, uh, there's a practical reality that the difference between $79 per year in 2005 and $139 per year now is a big increase. Inflation is built in there, but these are also things that, you know, you and I, Dan, from a place of privilege, frankly, can afford to pay these things. And I think the more important point is when you're going to raise prices, your most loyal customers are going to do an assessment the same way your new customers or non-loyal customers will be of is the value there. And I think one of the interesting things is Amazon has continued to innovate around, around the value that they provide through the Prime program so that loyal customers say, oh my gosh, I'd actually pay even more. Shh, don't tell them. Exactly right. And I have worked with a number of companies and clients that either want to get into the subscription business or are offering some sort of continuity program now. And they don't understand why everybody isn't rushing to sign up. And the reason is almost always the same. 
It's because they don't understand the value or the value is not clearly better than the price. And I think that's what Amazon has done so well is that, yeah, the price goes up, but the value has gone up infinitely more than the price has gone up. And so it becomes one of these charges that you you know, barely even notice when it happens. Now, I compare that to something like a credit card annual fee where the value stays the same all the time. Almost <laughs> I would posit it's good. It sometimes even goes down. It does. It does. And yet there's that fee every year. And you know what? That fee ticks me off every year. And so does that make me feel better or worse about the credit card company? Not better. But yet Amazon, I don't have that feeling because I feel like, man, I got so much value out of that that like you said, eh, if they raised it even more, I'd probably be okay. I think we, I think this applies to things like cable service or alarm system monitoring. I just realized the other day that my alarm system, which I've had for about 20 years, is way more expensive than I thought it was per month. And yet, I'm still working on a 20-year-old system. So they haven't upgraded me. They haven't... It, the system hasn't gotten any better. The monitoring hasn't gotten any better. It's just gotten more expensive. And so the learning here is if you want to build a continuity program, if you want to build a subscription program, which of course has become so popular, you have meal delivery services, everything, you've got to make sure that the value is there so that when people look at the price, they're not concerned about it. That doesn't become the deciding factor. You know, our friend John DeJulius likes to say, make price irrelevant. And the best way to do that is to create value in the form of experience or, or other value like Amazon does so that you can charge what you want and you're not competing on price. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Experience This. You're the best listener ever. And since you listened to the whole show... Yay, you! We're curious. Was there a specific part of this episode that you enjoyed the most? If so, it would mean the world to us if you could share it with a coworker, a friend, or someone that just loves listening to podcasts. And while you're in the sharing mood, if you felt inclined to jump over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and write us a review, we would so appreciate it. And when you do... Don't forget to let us know as we might have a little surprise for you. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next week for more Experience. Yes.